Well, there's this man named Dan Pink who has um, a new book called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And in the book, he talks about how um, people are often presented with, okay, we got good news and we got bad news. We got good news and we got bad news. Which do you want to hear first, right? Have you ever been presented that before? All right, we got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear? And in the book, he suggests that there's actually scientific uh, evidence that people would prefer bad news first and then good news. They would prefer to receive the bad news and then end on a positive note. And so one of the things that he does in the book is encourage uh, doctors and business leaders and teachers or anybody who has to communicate some kind of message to lead with the bad news and then end with the good news. And so he talks about that, but then he also in the book mentions something that I think is really interesting. He says that, that based on all of this data, that the best endings are not always happy in the traditional sense. Instead, they are marked by what he calls poignancy, a mix of happiness and sadness. So if you think about like the best story that you've read or the best Netflix series that you've watched or the best movie that you have watched, the ending of that movie for the best ones is not just where everything works out exactly as the, the main characters thought they would at the beginning, but instead there's this mix of reflectiveness. There's this mix of the character grew and he understood something different by the end. And so here's what he says. He says, the best endings don't just leave us happy. Instead, they produce something richer. A rush of unexpected insight. A fleeting moment of transcendence. The possibility that by discarding what we wanted, we've gotten what we need. Listen to this. The best endings offer good news and bad news about our behavior and judgment. An example of this is one of my favorite movies. It's called Apollo 13. Have you seen this movie? Now, in Apollo 13, this uh, is the story of Apollo 13, whose goal was to go to the moon, right? And so that's the plan. They are taken off, and they're on their way, and everybody's feeling good. That's what they all wanted. But then series after series after series of bad events starts to happen to their spacecraft, and it turns out they're not going to be able to go to the moon. And the goal shifts from going to the moon to just getting home safely. And you get to the end of the movie, and you are so relieved and excited and happy for these characters who made it home. But if it had not been for the bad news, the good news wouldn't have been that meaningful. If the story had just started with a group of people who go to space and then turn around and come home, it would be like, what was the point of that movie? It's the fact that they went through all of these difficult circumstances. There's all of this bad news that shows the development of these characters that then results in this climactic ending, this excitement of them being home. Now, here's the reason I tell you about all that. Okay, that's, you know... TED Talks and scientific stuff have been done about endings and, oh, the theory of that and all that. Here's why I tell you this. Because it's the same way with the good news that we celebrate as Christians. That in order for us to truly appreciate 
this good news that God is offering to all people. In order for us to understand that, in order for, us to, for that to mean something to us, we need to get the bad news first. We need to understand what the bad news is in order to fully appreciate what the good news is. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be in this series called Good News for All People. And that's been the tagline of our church for a long time. Good news for all people. And we're going to look at five different texts in the book of Romans to talk about what this good news is. But to do that first, we have to ask the question, why do we need the good news? In other words, what's the bad news? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be if you have a Bible and want to follow along. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what Paul is about to say. This will be on the screen for you. He's about to say, here's the bad news. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's the bad news. God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Let's look at what he says. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, verse 18 starts with the word for because it's part of this argument that Paul is making. And the argument basically goes like this. It goes, in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the good news. And so we should ask, well, why are you so eager to preach the good news? And he says, because the good news is God's power to save people. Okay, well, how is this good news that you preach the power to save people? And he says, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what he says in verse 17. And now the question we should ask is, well, why did we need God's righteousness to be revealed? And here's the answer in verse 18. Because God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. So let's define a few terms real fast. First of all, what is God's wrath? Wrath is God's good anger at sin. That's what wrath is. It's his good anger at sin. We'll look at that in just a minute. Ungodliness. He says, this wrath is revealed against ungodliness. What is that? Ungodliness is the opposite of God and his design for the world. That's ungodliness. It's the opposite of God and his design for the world. And unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, and we'll talk more about what that means next week. But unrighteousness is not living rightly towards others. Unrighteousness is not living rightly towards others. And so he says that God's wrath, this good anger that God has, is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So who is unrighteous and who is ungodly? Throughout this text, 
he uses the word they. He says, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. Who is he talking about? Well, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 10. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. In other words, who is he referring to when he says they, when he's talking about unrighteous people? Who's he talking about in this whole passage? That's right, me. He's talking about me, and he's talking about you, and he's talking about the people who live next to you, and he's talking about the people who ride the bus with you, and he's talking about the people who are in your kid's class at school, and he's talking about your you know, favorite teacher and your least favorite teacher. Everybody is who he's referring to. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who is he referring to throughout this whole passage? Everybody. And what do people do? So what does everybody do that makes them unrighteous? What does everybody do that makes them ungodly? That's what he tells us. He says that they are suppressing the truth. Do you know what it means to suppress something? It's like when you're pushing somebody underwater and you're holding them there. It's like when you, you have something that you're shoving down that you don't want to bring up. You're suppressing it. You're submerging it. He says that's what people do with the truth. What is he talking about? Look at what he says. Um, verse 19 and 20. He says, here's how they do this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, it's not complicated. It's plain. It's easy to understand. What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his, notice this, this is so interesting. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that's everyone. So they are without excuse. You see what he says? He says, here's what people do that, it, that makes them unrighteous. Here's what people do that makes them ungodly. They take the things that, be, that can be known about God just from what he's made, just from creation, just from human nature, just from what you observe in the world. We take what we can know about God through those things and we we suppress them. We don't live up to them. We don't try to live by them. Instead, we try to avoid them. That's what we do. Now, theology, uh, theologians call this, what he's referring to here, they call it natural revelation. Natural revelation. This means that God speaks to people in natural ways like sunsets and mountains and little cute babies and um, all kinds of things. That we can know stuff about who God is just from ordinary life. That's what he's saying. Um, so Psalm, nine, uh, Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 says this, the heavens, that is the sky, sunsets, stars, the moon, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. He's saying day and night, you can know stuff about God. Day and night. 
This is true in at least a few ways. Um, through beauty, so we talked about that, sunsets and mountains and oceans and art and music. You can experience something about who God is. You can know something about who God is just by the beauty that's in the world. You've heard songs before that moved you. That is something that should clue your heart into the fact that there is more to life than just biology. So we can perceive God through beauty. We can also perceive God through love. All different types of love. Romance. That whenever you, you can think back to a time when you went on a first date and you were just excited and there were these weird feelings that you had and there was this, this sense of anticipation for that. Or maybe if you're single now and, and you're thinking about, man, someday I would love to be with this person or there's this sense of anticipation that you have. That is something that should clue your heart into the fact that you were made by someone who must love you. Um, but this isn't just true of romantic love. It's also true in friendships. You know what it's like to be having dinner with friends late and talking and laughing and reminiscing about things. You know what it's like to experience the joy of feeling like you can trust someone, like you can tell them a secret and it's not going to go anywhere. You know the joy of that. You also know the pain of having that trust betrayed, don't you? And that should clue our hearts into the fact that there is a God who has made us to be known and to know people. It should teach us something about who God is. For those of you in the room who are parents, the feeling that you had the first time that you found out you were pregnant or the feeling that you had the first time that you met your kid, the joy and the awe and the humility that it just brought over you, that should clue our hearts into the fact that we were made by God and it should tell us something about who God is. Same with grandchildren. So beauty, love, but also justice. Also justice. People know intuitively that murder is wrong. People know intuitively that molesting children is wrong. People know intuitively that infidelity is wrong. People know intuitively that theft is wrong. We know that those things are wrong and we know that people who do them, that there needs to be an authority who intervenes. We know that. Those are all ways that God has revealed truth to us. But the Bible is not the first or the only place to clue us into this. The Declaration of Independence says the same thing. Listen to this. This is from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. Self In other words, everybody just knows this stuff. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence says that these things are self-evident. And of course, the irony is that even as they recognize that all men are created equal, they did not create a nation where all were equal. But there is something inside of all of us that knows some things. 
And Paul says that our problem, the thing that makes us unrighteous, is that we suppress those things. We exchange those truths for lies. We exchange truth for lies. Listen to what he says in uh, verses 21 through 23. He says, For although they knew God, and again, they is everyone, although we knew some things about God, we knew some truths, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see what he's saying? He's saying what we have done is we have taken things that we knew were true and we've traded those in for lies. And rather than honor God and try to serve him and try to do things in the way that he has designed the world to function, instead, we pursue all kinds of other things besides him. We make creatures more valuable than the creator. Now, in Paul's culture, they like literally worshiped all kinds of false idols. That's not really a thing that, you know, is as popular in the West today. Now, there are certain places in the world you can still go, and that's exactly how they still worship. But we do it more subtly than that, don't we? Um, there's um, a scientist named E.O. Wilson, who was a Harvard professor and a biologist, and he, in the 90s, he wrote a lot about ethics for The Atlantic, and I read The Atlantic every once in a while, and so I've stumbled across some of his articles. And here's what... Um, the, the premise of his way of thinking is that the way to make the world a better place is for all of us to get in touch with our roots. To get in touch with our roots. And I completely agree with him. He is 100% right. That the problem with, with the progression of humanity is that we abandon our source. The problem that he has is he has the wrong source. So here's what he says. He says, America invented conservation. We are the ones who launched the environmental movement. But now we need a stronger ethic, one woven in more effective ways from, notice this, science and poetry. The foundation of this ethic will be the recognition that humanity was born within the biosphere, that we, listen to this, that we are a biological species in a biological world. An allegiance to our biological heritage will be our ultimate strength. By, and here's the part. By cutting away our own roots, we risk losing the dream of sustainable development. Now, do you see what this man is saying? He's saying that the problem in the world is that we have strayed from our source. And we need to get back to that. The problem is he believes that our source is just people who exist in a biosphere. So the way for us to move forward, the way for us to treat people, the way for us to have a better existence is for us to just remember that we are just mammals. Paul is saying, you're half right. The way forward is to remember where we come from, but that is not where we have come from. 
Instead, there is a creator who has designed us. And the basic problem in the world is that we have strayed from his way. We have exchanged his truth for lies. That's the basic problem. Now, that's a philosophical example. Let me give you practical examples of how we do this in our culture, of how we trade in these lies, okay? Um, We take good things, we make them ultimate things, and then they become destructive things. So, for example, food, okay? Now, you know that, whatever, what's your favorite food? Just throw some stuff out. McDonald's, all right, perfect. It's going to work perfectly. McDonald's, all right? Now, you know that the number two, uh, two cheeseburger meal with no onion, you know that is the greatest thing in the world, right? Or maybe you're more of a Big Mac guy, or maybe you're more of a double cheeseburger guy. Maybe you're chick- McNuggets. I don't know, all right? Whatever, it all, it's all great. So you know that stuff is great, all right? The McFlurry, all right? It's awesome. But you also know that if that good thing, which it's debatable whether or not we would all call that good, okay? But um, you know that that good thing, that if it becomes an ultimate thing in your life, it'll destroy you, right? And that is what we do with all kinds of things. We take relationships that are great, but then we make them ultimate and they destroy us. Because we, we imagine that now that we have this kid, this kid is going to be the thing that I live for. And then what ends up happening, and, and for a long time I was a youth pastor, and so I met with all kinds of parents who were basically doing this to their kids, they just didn't realize. But they were putting all of their expectations on their kid because their worth was really wrapped up in their children. And what they were doing to their kids is creating this weight that they could never live up to. They were creating this this pressure and this this tension in their kid. It wasn't their intention, but they what made them feel most meaningful in life is that their kid would get into this college or their kid would grow up to be this great athlete or their kid would grow up to do this thing or this thing or this thing or whatever it was. And by trying to live through their kid, they were actually crushing their kid. They were taking something good, making it something ultimate, and they were destroying it. And that's what we do. We exchange truth for lies. So this is a problem. And it's a problem for church people too. Now, what Paul is going to do in chapter 2 that we're not going to get to look at because next week we'll be in chapter 3, but what he's going to do in chapter 2 is show that even religious people are guilty of the same things. See, sometimes religious people, they look at irreligious people as if, yeah, they're, you know, people who are exchanging truth for lies and they're doing all these horrible things, but, you know, thank God that we're here because we're going to straighten it out, you know? And what Paul shows in chapter 2 is that everybody is guilty. That everybody is guilty. And the fact that as religious people, we judge others for things just proves our own hypocrisy, which makes us even worse. So all of us are in this boat of exchanging truth for lies, of suppressing what we know to be true. So what would a good God do about that? Paul says that God is revealing his wrath. Now, this is where most people are like, hold up, I, I, I can't get there. Because 
it's impossible to reconcile a good and loving God with a God who would have wrath. So why does God have wrath? Why does he have anger? And here's why. Because God is a good God who designed the world to function in a good way. And unrighteousness and ungodliness create dysfunction, don't they? They create dysfunction. Let me give you an example of some dysfunction. Um, There are dysfunction uh, that we have created through murder and lying and adultery and rape and theft and greed and slander and gossip. We create dysfunction through doing those things. That results in all kinds of dysfunction like guilt and shame that people feel and feelings of worthlessness and anger and broken families and negative cycles. So there's all kinds of dysfunction that humans have created. There's also um, corruption and there's uh, dysfunction in culture. So we have things like war where thousands of people are killed. We have things like systemic injustices like global poverty and violence, and divorces, and absent fathers, and racism. We have all kinds of dysfunction in society. What would a good God do about those things? God's right response is anger and action. His right response is anger and action. And think about this for just a minute. Some of you, this is your story. That there was something that happened to you at one time in your, in your life. Somebody hurt you. Somebody wronged you. Somebody mistreated you. Maybe somebody abused you. And the people who were in authority, who had the power to do something about it, rather than step in and act To punish the guilty, they avoided it. And that has been the cause of pain for you. But listen, we do not have a God like that. We do not have a God who looks at disaster and trouble and abuse and says, there's nothing I can do. Instead, we have a God who gets angry about that and decides to act. Um, This week I was reading a story. Um, So um, I'm from Tennessee and the church that I grew up in is hiring a new pastor. And so they had this pastor that they were going to hire. They had a big search committee and, you know, the whole old school way of doing it. And so they finally came up with a candidate. He was supposed to come and, um, you know, preach in view of a call, which is the old Southern Baptist way of basically you preach and then they vote if they like you or not. And so uh, that's what they were going to do. All right. So he's going to come preach in view of a call. And then it came out that when he was, um, about 20 years ago, when he was a youth pastor, he had taken advantage of these two girls in his youth group. And their stories uh, became public. And the sad thing as you read their story is that the people who were in power at the church, when they found out about it, They said that the best thing to do would be to keep it quiet because it's just going to bring embarrassment on you if we go public with this. So instead of us going public, instead of us firing him, instead of us um, making him step down from his position, 
Instead, why don't we just be quiet about it? They helped him find a new job at a different church. And now the sad thing is that 20 years later, this church is still considering hiring him, even though he's never confessed to it. He's never repented of it. Now, are there times where there's a false person spreading a false narrative? Yeah. But when the people who are in authority know about what happened and then they choose not to act, we look at that and we say, that is wrong. And we should do that. God doesn't sweep it under the rug. God chooses to act on his anger. That's the kind of God that we have. Listen, this is why we take the name tag and the check-in thing really seriously here. Let's do a quick little pitch for for Kids City. That's what we're going to eventually call uh, the kids ministry, Kids City. Isn't that cool? Um, Listen, this is why we do the check-in thing. This is why we do the name tag thing. This is why sometimes when you serve, it's important for you to get here on time and be in your room and make sure everybody has the name tag because we want to be a place where kids are safe. We want to be a place where we make sure that the right adult gets the right kid. That's the reason that we take that kind of thing seriously. Because we have a God who takes it seriously too. John Stott is a theologian, was a theologian. He's one of my favorite. Here's what he says. He says, God's wrath does not mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. That's the kind of God that we have. So how does God reveal his wrath? Well, at least in two ways. First, there is a future wrath. In Romans 2.5, he says, But because of your hard heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there is this future day when God will step in once and for all and judge unrighteous people. There's a future day coming when, when, Jesus, when God will do that through his son Jesus. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. But here, Paul's emphasis is on the present way that God reveals his wrath. And this is kind of weird. But according to to Paul, God is currently revealing his wrath even now. And here's how he's doing it. He is letting unrighteous people experience the consequences of their unrighteous behavior. He's giving them up to their unrighteous behavior. He's allowing them to experience those consequences. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says this three different times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. 
Amen. Again, he says it in verse 26. For this reason, God, here's our phrase again, gave them up to dishonorable passions. He's going to describe what that looked like in, in one case. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here he says, one of the ways that people are living unrighteously is they are practicing homosexuality. Now, this is a very difficult thing to talk about in our culture, and yet here Paul talks about it. Now, there are some who come to this text and they try to reconcile um, living in a homosexual relationship and they try to make it um, acceptable based on what Paul says. They do that in a couple ways. First, they say that verses 26 and 27 don't refer to um, same-sex relationships in the way we know them today, but instead they refer to an abusive situation between an older man and a young boy um, because they argue that there was no such thing as a consensual, romantic, monogamous, homosexual relationship in the ancient world. Um, The main response to that, I think, is just there's no hint of that at all in the text. There's no hint of that at all in the text. Um, None of the words and language that is used has to refer to um, an older man and a younger, younger boy. Instead, it just says that it's women who are with women and men who are with men. Um, the second thing that people try to say is that natural here, so he says that they do what's not natural, and that means natural refers to what a person feels in themselves. So in these cases, it was a heterosexual person who was doing something homosexual. But if somebody is homosexual, then it would actually be unnatural for them to do something heterosexual. And to that, we would say a couple things. Um, First, there's a man named Richard Hayes who's written a thorough exegetical explanation of Romans chapter 1. And he provides lots of um, evidence that the opposition of natural and unnatural and here's a quote, was very frequently used as a way of distinguishing between heterosexual and homosexual behavior. So um, throughout the ancient world, when natural and unnatural were used, they were used to, um, to talk about homosexuality. So it's not a um, what's unnatural for me and what's unnatural for you. The phrases here mean practicing homosexuality. Um, the second thing we would say to that is that uh, differentiating, differentiating between sexual orientation and sexual practice is a modern thing. It was not a category for Paul. What Paul is condemning is homosexuality. What he's not advocating is that everybody has to be heterosexual. He's not saying that the opposite of being homosexual is being heterosexual. He's saying the opposite of being homosexual is being godly. It's being holy. So the, the issue here is that it's not that Paul's trying to force people who 
are homosexual to do something heterosexual. He's saying that the act of doing something homosexual is unrighteous. So he's not requiring that everybody have reparative therapy and learn how to be attracted to the opposite sex. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that the act of doing something homosexual is suppressing truth. Then he says this one, one more thing in verse 28. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with, this is verse 29, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil. And then notice the things that he lists here. Covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Malishness, maliciousness, I'm sorry. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking it from a specific type of sexual sin in verses 24 and 25. Then he's mentioning homosexuality, and now he's mentioning all kinds of sins. So his goal here is not to make homosexuality worse than anything else at all. What his goal here is to leave no one off the hook. Everyone is unrighteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. That means that God's wrath is revealed on everyone. So this is not the kind of thing where the church looks at a particular group of people and says, those people are terrible. Those people God hates. Those people deserve God's wrath because the church needs to be pointing at ourselves and saying, we are broken people. We are unrighteous people. We are people who deserve God's wrath. We are the ones who have done this. No one is righteous, no, not one. And that includes me. That includes the pastor, that includes the associate pastor, it includes the deacons, it includes the elders, it includes the pastor's wife, it includes the deacons' wives and the elders' wives, and it includes the greeters and the kids' workers and you. Okay? So nobody is off the hook here. Everybody is unrighteous and everybody deserves God's wrath. So, the conclusion of this is that there's bad news. There's bad news. Do you know what the bad news is? That God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that's me. That's you. That's the bad news. So why do we need the good news? Because that's bad. And science suggests that people need to know the bad news before they know the good. And by understanding the bad, you can fully appreciate the good. See, that is the predicament that we are in. That we are unrighteous, we deserve God's wrath. So do you know what God has done? God has made his righteousness available to you for free. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. Why? For I am not ashamed of the good news. I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not bashful about it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith from start to finish. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what that means. Next week, we're going to talk about what the good news is. We're going to talk about how the good news offers us righteousness. But first, we need to make sure that we are clear about the bad news. And so listen, if you are here this morning, my prayer is that something that has been said begins to put a weight on you that feels unbearable. That you would come to grips with your sin. That you would come to grips with the fact that you are not okay on your own. That you are unrighteous. That you have things in you that are not right. And that you deserve God's wrath. Not because he wants to get back at you. Not because he's, you know, just has vengeance against you. But because he cares about the world that he's made. My hope is that you would come to grips with that. You would feel overwhelmed by it. That you would see your sin. But then that you would not stay there but that you would lift your eyes off of yourself and your sin and you would look to Jesus who is hanging on the cross in your place, who is dying for you, who is suffering the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. Jesus has died for you in your place and he has been raised from the dead so that you can experience not the wrath of God, but the peace and the joy and the presence of God. Now, that is the good news. And so this morning, the right response to that is for you to believe it, to come and believe, to repent of your sin. That just means to change your mind, to say, my sin is bad even though I've been doing it because I thought it was fun, no, actually, it's bad for me, and to come to Jesus and trust that he can forgive you, that he can make you new. So come believe this morning. That's what I hope that would happen to you. The other thing that I hope would happen to us is that we would become a church who knows what the bad news is. The bad news is not that we're going to paint your favorite color out in the hallway. The bad news is not that we're going to do the Lord's Supper differently. The bad news is not that we're downstairs instead of upstairs. The, down, the bad news is not that now we're, you know, the flags are eventually going to go out of the room maybe, or that the piano got moved closer, or that the baptismal's over there, and what about the plants? The bad news is not any of that. The bad news is that we were dead in our sin, and we deserved God's wrath. And so when we have a right understanding of what the bad news is, then we can rightly celebrate the good news and we can rightly pursue a mission with the good news. There's good news for all people. So if we have our minds set 
on what the, the real bad news is, then we will celebrate the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to be the ransom for our sin. God, he died in our place. He was raised from the dead. And God, we want to trust him this morning. God, for those in the room who do not know you, I ask that your spirit would be active right now and introduce yourself. God, I pray where there is doubt this morning that you would give faith. God, where there is conviction of sin this morning, I ask that we would not live in guilt and shame, but we would look to Jesus. God, I pray that we would not be hypocrites who condemn certain types of sin while we celebrate our own sinfulness, but God, that we would be humbled before you, that we would look to your son, Jesus, that we would celebrate that his mercy is greater than our sin. Amen.